Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. It is great to have each and every one of you with us this morning. We're going to begin a short teaching series uh, that's simply just focused on Advent, which is, it's a Christian celebration. It's a Christian holiday uh, that began centuries ago where we count down the Sundays leading up to Christmas by preparing our hearts and preparing our homes for the arrival of Jesus. And one of our traditions here that we've had for the last, at least as long as I've been the pastor here, so 11 Christmases, is we light uh, the Advent candle and each week we add one of the additional candles. So you'll see if you come up here and look closer at it later, there's there's a total of five candles there. The tallest one is the Christ candle, which will light on Christmas Eve. Each of the other candles represent one attribute, one characteristic that Jesus uniquely brought into the world at his birth at Christmas. And so each of the weeks, every year, we read scriptures that talk about how Old Testament prophets promised that Jesus would bring these things in the world when he arrived. And then we show in the New Testament how God made good on that promise. So if you stick around here this month, what you're going to get is a good track record of God's reliability and trustworthiness. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. And so what we decided to do this year was that each week we'll pair what we teach on with the specific candle. So this week we lit the uh, hope candle. This week we'll, we'll spend a few minutes looking at hope specifically on hope how Jesus brought hope into the world at his birth. And one of my all-time favorite, I collect quotes. Um, They don't cost anything, so I collect them. And I have a little, uh, you know, in the notes app on my phone, whenever I come across an inspiring quote or something that really hits me, I just enter it in there before that I forget, and I can kind of go back through it. One that I entered years ago, I came across... Um, when I was studying to teach on Ephesians chapter 1. And it comes from, if you know me at all, um, you might guess who my personal favorite all-time, and it's hard to do this, I don't know if it's right to do it, but my favorite all-time kind of like teacher, preacher, pastor. Do any of you know who that might be? Well, some of you said Paul. He's really good too. Um, (laughs) But yeah, probably Tim Keller, Dr. Tim Keller. He passed away this year, went home to be with the Lord after a battle with cancer and so there's certainly some bittersweetness when I go back through my notes. And fortunately, um, his organization cataloged all of his sermons and recording, and they were able to make it free. They took away the paywall this year, so you can access his kind of whole catalog of teaching. And years ago, on the 20th anniversary of a church, he plant, a little church he planted in Manhattan called Redeemer Presbyterian. I say little. Very impactful, powerful church in Manhattan. Um, He preached from Ephesians 1 on the topic of hope. I will not be preaching from Ephesians 1 this morning. But he offered um, a two-sentence statement that made it into my all-time favorite quotes. And I want to share it with you this morning. Because what it does is it tells you why you should be really interested in this sermon today. Okay? Here's what he says. And he says it so much more smartly than I would ever come up with. So let me just give it to him, give the credit to him. Quote, humans are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-dependent creatures. 
What we believe about our future completely controls how we feel about the present. Let me read that to you one more time. Humans are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-dependent creatures. Let that sink in. What he's saying is that oxygen, we are oxygen-dependent creatures. We are hope-dependent creatures. You take hope away from us, our existence diminishes drastically in its quality. Now, why does he say we're hope-dependent creatures? Here's his proof. What we believe about our future completely controls how we feel about our present. Let me offer you, he spends 40 minutes proving that in his sermon. I'm not going to do that today. But let me offer to you, this is not a new illustration, but it's a particularly powerful one to prove how what you believe about your future shapes and frames how you feel about your present. Imagine that we took person A and person B and they both got the same exact job. Let's pick a Baltimore institution. They get the same exact job working at McCormick. They're going to be, they're going to work in the spice factory and they're each going to get the exact same position. They're going to work in two, two stations right next to each other, same lighting, same temperature, same schedule. Eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. They're both going to do exactly the same job. They're going to screw the cap on paprika spice canisters. That's what they're going to do. That's all they're going to do. Eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. Here's the difference. Person A has signed a contract that says at the end of the year they will receive a $10,000 salary at the end of the year. One check, end of the year. Person B, I know you're thinking, oh, that's, uh, <laughs> Person B, same exact job, difference. They signed a contract, they will receive $1 billion at the end of the year. Same job, but maybe not. Now just imagine about 12 weeks in, they're sitting at lunch in the break room, person A, their face looks a little different than person B. Person A says to person B, ah, this job, it's terrible. It is boring and dull, smells like paprika, it's tedious, it's not challenging. I don't get paid till the end of the year. It's not going to be enough for my bills. I'm thinking about quitting. This is just awful. And person B just kind of looks up from their cup of noodles and says, really? Huh. I kind of like this job. Lighting's fine. Climate's fine. It's only eight hours a day. I kind of like my job. In fact, I think it's great. I would never quit this job. Why the difference? What they believe about their future. That makes all the difference and what you think about the conditions you live in right now is what you believe about your future. You either believe there is an awesome, awesome, awesome it. That's awesome ultimate. You either believe that there is an awesome ultimate future for you that far outshines the present or you don't. And what you believe about your future absolutely shapes what you feel about your present. Thus we have the idea 
of the word hope. The Bible has a lot to say about hope. Here's the challenge of what the Bible says about hope. The challenge is that the Bible was not originally written in English, right? What were some of the languages the Bible was originally written in? There's three primary ones. Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew. New Testament, primarily Greek. Although sometimes when you have somebody in the New Testament who's quoting the Old Testament, they'll write it in the Hebrew or the Aramaic. Old Testament, primarily Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. The difference was one was used more in high writing and education. The other one was used more conversationally. So every time that we're trying to understand the Bible, we have to understand it's been translated by a team of scholars into English. And sometimes our English word is weaker than the Bible word. Our word for hope is much weaker than what the original language was about hope. Our word for hope carries with it this idea of I'm totally unsure and totally uncertain, but I'm crossing my fingers and my feet and just, I'm hoping. Like yesterday, for some reason I thought it would be a brilliant idea since Kendra was off from work and the boys were home from school, why don't the four of us just go over to the avenue? I, I don't know why I thought that that was a good idea. I mean, I mean, I guess in my mind, I'm like, we have all these different things we need to do. Isaiah's grown out. His, his feet started hurting on Thanksgiving Eve, and we're like, yeah, maybe your shoes are too small. And then we got his feet measured. He's jumped two sizes, so all parents understand that's not exciting. Um, but there's this awesome place called the Nike Factory Store. And so I was like, we could get to the Nike factory store. The boys are wanting reptiles. We could knock out some of that stuff. And we would just combine it all. Well, after about an hour of avenueing, hangriness had set in. And I thought it might be wise for us to stop somewhere over there and get something to eat. I won't name the name of the restaurant. Um, but we walked through the first set of doors. And there was just, there was like seating in the waiting area that was completely filled. It was standing room backed out the door. I'm like, this is not a good you know how your heart just sinks when you're really hungry and you're like, it's 2.30, no one's going to be over there and you walk in and everybody's there. And half of the seats in the restaurant were empty and when we went to the hostess, she's like, I'll take your name and we'll text you. It's going to be about a 20-minute wait. And, you know, for me, I'm just like, well, this is just kind of how it happens. It's that time of the year. We'll just wait. We'll just wait long enough and we'll eventually get a seat. Half their wait staff was sick that day and so this, that, the other. My six-year-old didn't have as optimistic of an outlook. He's very literal. She said 20 minutes. And you know what that means? I mean, 20 minutes. The 21st minute comes. We had seen no one get seated during that 20 minutes. We'd seen many people get up and leave. Their tables remained uncleaned and unbussed. I was all right with the whole situation. I'm just like, we're just going to sit here. You know, I'm doing the math in my head. Till we get out of here and leave and get in a car and go somewhere, we're going to be no farther ahead. We'll just hang out. They'll eventually feed us. It's going to happen. I've seen this song before. I've seen the movie before. The six-year-old not said, Dad, they have lied to us. He used the word betrayed. They have betrayed us. I'm like, wow, that's awfully strong for six. I guess... We're just going to starve here. And I was like, buddy, that's not going to be the case. They're going to feed us. Are you sure? And I'm like, uh-oh, because he's very literal. I'm like, yeah, I, I hope so. They're going to take care of us. I said, what about you? He goes, well, I guess I hope so. 
That's our idea of hope. Hope is there's no chance. I am uncertain. I'm unsure. I really, but I guess the politically nice thing to say, I'll just cross my fingers and hope my number gets drawn. I, I, it's just, it's the nicer way of giving up. I hope. I have no strategy. I have no plan. I have no reason. I have no logic. I have no confidence. But I guess I just won't delete it just yet. I'll, I'll, I'll hope. In our, it means uncertain, not confident, unsure. That is the opposite of the, biblical's def, the biblical definition of hope. Total opposite. I just want you to know, the Bible is not calling you into irrational, unfounded, finger-crossing uncertainty. The Bible never defines hope that way. In fact, probably the most famous verse on hope, Hebrews 11.1, 1, says that faith is the uh, being confident in what we hope for and being certain of what we don't see. The Bible's definition of hope carries with it two words, confidence and certainty. That's the type of hope that the original language carries to us. And when the Bible speaks of having hope in God, hope in Christ, hope of his promises, hopes of a better ultimate future, it's not calling you to uncertain, cross your fingers, hedging your bets, hoping your number gets called. It is calling you to a life of certainty you just haven't seen yet. The same type of certainty that you can say, the reason I'm not uptight about this movie that I'm watching, I've seen it seven times. I know she gets the guy in the end of the movie. I can relax. It's just truth that hasn't happened yet. So let me give you the two compatible definitions the Bible offers you for hope. This is what Christianity offers you as a resource that I hope you can go home with today. I hope you can go home with. I like how I did that. I hope you can go home with that today. Hope is one definition. Hope is being convinced, convinced, convinced that despite the evidence, things can change for the better. It's being convinced. That helps us. When you take a snapshot of your life and you say, man, this picture of what I'm feeling today doesn't look like God's being faithful to me. Something that God promised I don't see. Something that he didn't promise I'm experiencing. I'm looking at this snapshot and if we've learned anything, snapshots are not the best way to see God's character. God's character is better seen in large pictures over time because when you reduce it down, there's lots of pictures in the Bible where if you just took that picture, it doesn't tell the complete story of who God is and what he's doing. You have to fit it into the bigger picture and then you say, ah, I do see his goodness. I do see his mercy. I do see his plan in that. So one of the things the Bible gives us is when you're looking around at your life and you say, right now, I don't see the evidence of God making good on his promises. Hope says, but I'm convinced that this small picture is not the end of the movie. I'm convinced that despite the evidence, God is still working and things still can change for the better. I like the second definition even better. The first one's no less true, but I like this one even better. In the Bible, and especially in this story, hope is represented this way. Truth that hasn't happened yet. Truth, not a wish. Not a whim. Not a lottery ticket. It's not just well-wishing. It's saying, I know, and I'm confident. I haven't seen it, but I am confident that it will happen. 
Hope looks forward to what you know is going to happen. Listen, isn't Christianity at its very, I'm sorry, uh, baby may sleeping. Isn't Christianity at its very core, isn't it, doesn't it require some hope from you? How many of you have seen heaven? Okay, if you do, you can write a book about it, tell us about it. But listen, I haven't seen it. Okay? I mean, I've been, I've been the first one through the door some days when the Nike clearance outlet opens. That's maybe close. I've been to Mission Barbecue when they've just pulled a load of brisket out. That's probably what heaven smells like. <laughs> I've not seen it. But I am basing how I feel right now on my confidence that because God's promised me about it, that he'll make good on it. And that it's waiting for me. It is truth. That just hasn't, I haven't seen it yet. We hope that this is true. I wasn't there when any of it happened. I didn't, and that's what, well, you can't prove anything in the Bible because you can't observe it. And you, well, you can't prove anything that happened from that same era. You can't prove any of history that way then. You have to, everything else you accept about history and Shakespeare and Darwin and anybody else who lived before we had all these other ways of recording it, you're trusting it the same way. We're hoping this is all true and it really came from God and it is 100% authoritative in our life. We hope Christianity requires hope, but it's not just a wish. I just kind of hope I'm hedging my bets. I kind of, the hope the Bible talks about is in an undiminished, irrepressible confidence that it's true, and it talks about truth that hasn't happened yet. Well, how can I grow in that? You look at the track record of the person making the promises. And if you're going to hope for something, you're going to have to put your hope in someone. That's what hope requires. It requires a someone, and it requires a something. Someone, because if I asked you right now, what's one thing you hope for? Now, don't call it out to me. But just think about it. What's one thing you hope for? What's one thing you don't have right now that you hope at some point to have? Something you don't own, something you don't see, something you haven't experienced that you hope at some point to have, to see, to experience. There's a range of answers. Some of us, it's, it's in dollars and cents. I hope for my salary to increase. I hope to have no debt. I hope to have the house paid off. I hope to be able to retire someday. I hope to have a bigger house, a smaller house, a newer car, more wardrobe. I hope. Some of us hope for something different with your job, a different job, a more fulfilling job, a more satisfying job, more education, more power. I hope to have better relationships with my children, my parents, my siblings. I hope to see this part of the world. I hope to have this experience. I hope to be 30 pounds heavier or lighter. I hope for children. I hope for marriage. Hope. We hope for. The better question I could ask you is once you've got that thing in your mind, here's the better question. If you had that right now, what do you expect that would deliver to you and how you feel about yourself in your life? If you had that. If you had that money, if that debt was gone, if you had that health, that beauty, that relationship, that person, that individual, that job. Here's what I think it would deliver you at minimum, you're hoping it would give to you. A certain kind of peace you don't have now and a certain kind of joy you don't have now. Less anxiety, more freedom, less stress, more options, ease, 
and a certain sense of joy and fulfillment you don't have right now. Now, the second thing I just described, that's what God is offering to you today. But he's willing to bypass you getting that thing. In other words, what God wants to provide for each and every one of us, if we could sit you down and get out the huge binder of your benefits plan of being a Christian and walk through it and say, here's open eternal enrollment. Now that you're saved, here's everything you get. Within that is something called durable, lasting hope, peace, joy, purpose, and identity. And you can have it now, guess what? Whether or not you ever get the thing you're hoping for. Because if the only way you'll ever be satisfied in your heart is if you get the thing you're hoping for, guess what? That thing is your savior. And you know what you'll do? You'll even be willing to give your life to God out of the hopes that now that you've given your life to him, he will deliver to you the thing you hope for most. Well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm trying really hard, my salary's gonna go up. My conflict's gonna go down. Everybody's gonna love me. I'm gonna be more popular. I'm gonna have more ease, no trouble. Friend, that's not part of the benefits package. But here's the part of the benefits package. You get hope that lasts. You get joy that lasts. That new car you're hoping for, it will give you joy for a little while. You'll drive that thing home. You'll put it on social media. You will thank God. You'll be, you know, how are you? Blessed and highly favored. God's been good. I'm sorry, baby May. Blessed and highly favored. Oh, you'll be so thankful. You'll want everybody to smell your car, look at your car, see your car. 13 years from now, you will not talk about the car the same way. Well, you know, I'm just hanging on. Can't really afford a new car right now. But this old piece of junk, oh, please pray for me. The Lord has cursed me with this thing. Why am I saying that? Because you know that's how it goes. God, just please give us children, and then he does. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then they're like, dear Lord in heaven, I know I asked for this, but not all of this. What do I mean by that? Every joy you experience now here on earth, it diminishes. Or it's not static. It ups and down. It's slipping through our fingers. That doesn't mean that it's bad or that it's evil. It just means what God offers in terms of the hope is that it is durable. It's not tied to circumstances. You can trust him and you can hope in his promises. So let's look very briefly at how what we just said about hope intersects Jesus's birth. Because in Jesus's birth, and especially in this little tiny story that's buried in only one of the four gospels of a very nondescript man that we only know about one paragraph worth of his life story, buried within that, is, is a wealth of information and inspiration about God, about hope, about promises, and about us. In this story, you see a gigantic group of dozens of God's promises over 3,500 years that he made generally to the whole world. We see them fulfilled. And in the same story, we see one specific promise God made to one specific person that he hasn't made to the whole world, 
we see that promise fulfilled. And at the intersection of that, that one person receives the fulfilled promise of God and he holds in his hand hope. And he says, now I can live in peace and die in peace. And that's what I want you to walk out of here with today. I want you to walk out of here with a durable peace that's not connected to your salary, your health, your wealth, your beauty, your car, whether you get seated at, at restaurants. <laughs> they had a good deal going on. The service was great. It just took a minute to get seated. But it's disconnected from all of those things. It is durable. Because as Christians, when we think about our future, I want to make sure I inject this today in the few minutes I have left. What I'm talking about this morning, make no mistake, when I talk about your future, I am talking about your ultimate future, not your immediate future. Don't get it twisted. Because you can walk out of here, I hope in God, I'm going to rest in him. He makes good in all his promises. And then what you'll start doing is assuming God makes you some promises he hasn't made you, they're not in the welcome kit. I'm giving my life to God. I'm going to try harder now. I'm going to give more, serve more, stress less. And then God is going to make my salary go up and my kids come home and my relationships be better and the mortgage is going to get paid off real quick and this and that and the other. God didn't promise all that stuff. And what's going to happen is you're going to put on God some promises he didn't make. You're going to cast some unrealistic expectations on God. And your immature faith is going to get crushed. I have no hope. Why? Because God's making, not making good on his promises. Well, you either need to wait or you need to say, well, what promise do you think he's not being good on and see if that's a promise he actually made? Or is that one you're projecting on to God? We see all this in the story of a man named Simeon. Have you heard of Simeon and Anna? A couple of you have. You should read through this story. It's a good one. There's a lot in here and we can't touch all of it. Let's just touch a tiny bit of it and then ask two questions. Here's the story. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Here's all we know about him. Here's the couple facts. He was righteous, one. Devout, two. And was eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel, three. Here's a fourth fact. And I hope those of you that know the Bible a little bit more, I just want your ears to perk up here because this is very unusual for this time in history. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Some of you know why that's unusual. I won't spend a lot of time this morning, but the Holy Spirit had not yet been handed the baton from Jesus to be like the main representative of God on the earth just yet. The Holy Spirit wasn't in people yet, but yet you have a few times in the Old Testament and the New Testament where it says the Holy Spirit was upon people. Very unusual for them to point this out at this point in the big story. But here he is. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. This is crazy to me. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. You know what this means? Simeon's old. Real old. Should have kicked the bucket. Everybody thought that he was too old to even be alive, but he was still alive. I know it's not politically correct, but this is biblically accurate. He was old. He knew he was old. The people knew he was old. God knew he was old. God knew he was ready to die, expecting to die. But God said, Simeon, don't worry. You're not going to die yet. So Simeon did not worry and knew he wasn't going to die. Even when people said, Simeon, man, you are getting old. When are you going to die? Not yet. Why? The Lord told me. That guy's crazy, man. God doesn't talk to people like that. 
Jews didn't believe in all that mess. Verse 27. That day, this is, again, this is crazy because this is so unusual at this time in history. The Spirit led Simeon into the temple. Can you please appreciate the awkwardness of what's about to happen? So when Mary and Joseph roll into the temple, they came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required. Where did all Jewish parents take their babies? Took them to the temple. Joseph and Mary are not the only people walking in with a baby. Plenty of other people. Simeon was there. Joseph and Mary didn't know Simeon. Simeon didn't know Joseph and Mary. It's not like Jesus had a little name tag, a little custom-made onesie that said, The Messiah. Simeon was there. Now, just appreciate what he does next. He takes the child. If you did this at the avenue, there would be fists thrown. I don't know exactly how he knew it was that baby. Was he glowing? Did he have the onesie on? Was it, did he ask different people? I guess the Spirit just told him, and he was confident enough because he walked with the Lord every day, he recognized God's voice enough to walk with confidence up to Joseph and Mary and take the child saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. Which is beautiful. And if you're Mary, you're looking at this guy and like, what is going on? This guy that I don't know is holding my kid, asking God to let him die now. Verse 30, he says, I hope you catch this. He was eagerly waiting for what? A couple of verses earlier. For the Messiah to do what? To comfort or console Israel. That's what he's waiting for all his life. Why was he waiting for it? The prophets promised it. He knew what the prophets said, and he was confident. Even in his elderly years, he was eagerly awaiting this. You know what that is? That is convinced confident hope. I'm going to see it. Well, why are you acting like that? Because I'm going to see it. Well, we don't see it around here, Simeon. It's been a good minute since we've had our sovereignty around here. We're going to see it. God promised it. I just know. I am confident, and I'm going to see it with my own eyes before I die. Therefore, I have peace. But now he says, he doesn't say, I've seen your consolation. He says, I have seen your salvation, he says something more groundbreaking than that, which you have prepared for all people. This is not what he was waiting for. He wasn't waiting for salvation of all people. He was waiting for Israel to be consoled and comforted from what happened in 63 BC, which we'll talk about in a minute when he was a little boy. He holds Jesus and the Holy Spirit opens his eyes to see, oh, there's something so much bigger here. I'm holding in my hands God's down payment on his promise to save all people. This is not really how the Jews thought about all other people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and, and he's the glory of your people Israel. Now, the song continue, continues on. I won't teach on the rest of the song today, um, but I will read it to you briefly because I have just a few minutes here. Uh, Jesus' parents were amazed. Then Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary and said to Mary, the baby's mother, he's just met them. He's holding their beautiful little infant. He's ready to die in peace. 
and the baby will save the world. Here's what he says to Mary next. Just, again, just sit in the awkwardness of this for a moment. The child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He's been sent as a sign from God, but Mary, I want you to know, many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. I'm going to go die now. He says to Mary, what a cute little baby. A sword's going to pierce your soul. Was he right, though? Yeah. So what do we do with, with this? Here's the big idea. Christmas offers us someone to place our hope in. Christmas offers you something to hope for. Here's what I want you to remember. That thing you're hoping for are those things, if you drill deep enough into your own thought process, there's a someone you'll get to if you drill down deep enough. I still remember when my parents built a house on Honey Rock Road in Chambersburg when my dad had to hire someone to, to drill the well and how far they had to go down and they're measuring how many gallons per minute were coming up and the farther that they went, the deeper that they got and the more water came up. The farther you drill into what you hope for, you're eventually going to get to a someone. There is someone that's going to have to dispense the object you hope for. Now, it might be you. I just hope that at some point I can discipline myself to do A, B, C, D, and E. It might be someone you haven't met. When I went to college, I was convinced I'd never find anybody to marry. I know that's hard to believe when you look at this. I had good reason to believe there's going to be nobody that's going to want to marry me. So there still was a someone in the equation. I just hadn't met them. Of course, then I met her and she wasn't interested. So I had to really, 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 really work hard. Wear her down over time. But there's a someone connected to what you hope for. And what I would tell you is this. You better trust that person. You hope your income increases. That might be tied to a someone that has a decision to make. You hope in a spouse to be a certain way. You hope and can... Listen, if you're going to put your hope in somebody, make sure you can really, really, really trust them. The more confident you can be is directly proportional to the trustworthiness of the person you're, you're putting your hope in. That's why when my son didn't see everybody, anybody get sat, my son had a lot of hope in the hostess at the restaurant. When he saw that she didn't clean up any tables and hadn't sat anybody in 20 minutes, his hope went. He would have felt differently if he would have seen her moving around, busting tables, not texting on her phone. He'd have had more confidence, but he was making this idea. I don't think she's trustworthy until a manager came out, had a quick conversation. All of a sudden, things started moving. Christmas offers you someone to put your hope in who's dependable. And the something that you hope for has to be something that's going to supply joy for you. Why? You don't hope for something that brings you no joy. We don't hope for that. We dread that. So Christmas offers you someone to put your hope in, something to hope for. Two questions I want to ask today. Who can we put our hope in and what can we hope for? I'm going to give you a very short answer. It's going to look unsatisfying, but I want to give you the whole answer. Who can I put my hope in? God. Not just God, God the life-changing, historically trustworthy, keeper of all his promises to us. 
We see that in this story. We don't know much about Simeon. We have no outward description of him. Don't know how tall he was. Don't know if he had a unibrow. Don't know how, what he dressed like. We just know he was old and probably had a beard because that's how Jewish men kept their hair, facial hair back in the day. That's all we know. All we have is an inward description of him. And that just reminds us that God always looks at the inward and prioritizes that over the outward. What do we know about him? Just a very, very few things. He was old, and he knew he was old, and everybody knew he was old. He was ready to die, but not yet. He was still eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of promises. He had no evidence to support was near, but he trusted that it was just truth he hadn't seen yet. That's why he was still eagerly awaiting into his elderly years, he was still eagerly awaiting. If you do the math, he was probably about five to six years old in 63 BC when General Pompey captured Jerusalem, raided the temple, put it under Roman rule. He was probably a little boy and remember what it was like before and after that invasion. He had lived long enough to know that there wasn't a lot of evidence around him to suggest that Israel's rescue was imminent, but he had hope. He was confident. Even though there's no evidence around me necessarily to support it, I trust, I trust, because God promised us generally, but he promised me specifically, he says the Spirit led him to the temple that day, that day. Even though he had no evidence, he Okay, it's enough. Here's my question. Why, of all the Jews who were waiting for the Messiah, why does God pick this joker to get the inside scoop? He's not powerful. He's not well-dressed. We know nothing about his past or his resume. What attracts God to an individual to that degree? Well, all we know is that he was righteous, devout, and eagerly were awaiting the return of the Messiah, and therefore the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I guess that's enough for me to tell you that if you want to know God's ways, all you need to do is live right before him and be devoted to him, and he'll talk to you. It's not a 30-part sermon. Wouldn't you like God to speak to you about your present and your future in as much detail, with as much confidence as he did to Simeon? Don't tell me you don't. You want to know that. We're obsessed about our future. Well, God just might not want to talk to me. God loves to talk to us about all kinds of things. What was it about Simeon? He lived right before the Lord. He was righteous. All that means is that he made sure his heart was clean. He, would, he made sure I'm right with God and I'm right with others. That means he went to God the dentist regularly. Are you right with God? Do you live right with God? How often do you even think about that? Well, every Sunday, just before you pray at the end, then I want to make sure I'm not going to, I, I, you know, I do. Not enough. Well, I mean, enough and not. You're wasting a whole part of your week living outside of rightness with, I don't mean unsaved. I mean, staticky communication. Because why is God going to talk to you about this? Why is he going to talk to you about your future if you're not listening to him in the present? No point. Live right with the Lord. Take time daily to let God examine your heart. And if there's something not right, allow God to make it right. Friends, this is not rocket science. This is how you hear clearly from God. 
You will not hear clearly from a spouse if you only make things right every once in a while. He lived right. He was also devout. You know what that means? He was devoted. Have you heard that word before, devoted? It doesn't mean, it means loyal, but it means more than that. It means an intense, love-based loyalty. He was devoted to the Lord. He was devoted to him. What do we call sometimes that few minutes a day we're supposed to spend in Bible study and meditation and prayer? What do we call it? We call them our daily devotions or devotionals. Have you ever thought about the connection? Do you do it out of loving, intense loyalty or out of just you know, begrudging, box checking to make sure I don't feel as bad as I would if I didn't do this? Well, pastor, I don't really like to read the word. I don't really, it's boring and it's dull. Then you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying you're going to get a lightning bolt and the, you know, Haley's Comet's going to show up every day. But here's what I know. Yeah, that's only once every how many years? If you missed it already, I don't know if it's going to be, you're going to have to pull a simian to be around until it comes again. <laughs> that's, that's, that's your once in a lifetime Halley's Comet reference in one of my sermons. So just, you know, mark that. You'll probably never hear it again. I don't do devotions to check off a box. I enjoy my time with the Lord. I enjoy it. He was devoted to the Lord, which means he spent time regularly with God. It was a priority to him, and he lived right with God. And you know what the result was? The Holy Spirit was, was upon him, and God spoke to him in ways. We don't know exactly how God spoke to him, but he did it through the Spirit in such a way that he was just confident that he heard from God. Well, Pastor, how do I hear from God better? Give me the eight things. Nope, walk with him and live right. How do you know the sound of your baby's cry over everybody else? You live with them. You walk with them. You hear them. The more repeatedly you hear something, you recognize somebody's voice. Simeon shows us that. God made a general promise to, to Israel and to the world. He made a promise to save Israel. To, to, you know, he had made, we've talked about this ad nauseum. For them to be a nation, to have borders, to have a government, to be sovereign. He also made a promise, a bigger promise to the whole world that he would buy us back, redeem us from sin's curse through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He made a big general promise. And then he makes a specific promise to Simeon. You won't die until you see him with your own eyes. And here Simeon is, and in his hands, he holds God's promise to him and the world fulfilled. And what does he do? When he puts God's fulfilled promise in his hands and he takes it to his chest. That experience of him taking hold of God's promise gave him peace about living and dying. And isn't that what you've experienced when you've taken Jesus' promise and you've held on to it? When you can believe about your ultimate future, when that's resolved in your heart, you have peace about how you live, whether you live your doesn't mean you have a death wish. It frees you up to love this life without this life controlling you because you know you've got an ultimate future that's secure. Why? Because God has a track record of being faithful to his promises. Somebody put this together. I didn't, but let me share it with you. There's over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Over 300. Here's just a few. I recognize I probably need to hurry up here. Um, 
Genesis 3, Isaiah 7, and Jeremiah 31 all prophesy that Jesus is coming. The fact of his birth. I'll give you one. Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you the sign, look, the virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, and she'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hundreds of years before Mary conceived, God promised through a prophet, here's what you should look for. A virgin's going to get pregnant. The degree of difficulty on that's pretty high, guys. She's going to get pregnant. It's going to be a boy. She's going to give him this name. Hundreds of years before it happens. Okay? But that wasn't enough. Just if you could explain that away, he, he's going to give you the where. Numbers 24, that's way early in the Bible. Micah 5, that's closer to the middle of your Bible. Let me just give you one of those prophecies. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, and yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Why Bethlehem? I don't know. God promised Bethlehem. Present day, Palestine. Bethlehem. Joseph didn't grow up in Bethlehem. Joseph grew up in Nazareth. How did God get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy? Taxes. Ha ha. Some of you are like, yes, I knew there was a biblical reason for taxes. God used taxes and censuses to get. Even predicts, I, I need to hurry up. Psalm 72, Isaiah 60 says that Kings from the east and the west will come and bring him gifts. The western kings of Tarshish and other lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. They talk about what he's going to get at his baby shower. Hundreds of years before it happens. Hundreds of years before it happens. That's just about his birth. There's over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's not even talking about the New Testament prophecies of his return. Well, how can I be confident that he's coming back? Well, he's made good on every promise so far. Why is he going to stop now? Peter Stoner, in his classic book, Science Speaks, calculated the chance of any one human being fulfilling the 300-plus prophecies written about Jesus, even down to the present day. And here's what he figured. The odds of one person fulfilling all of those prophecies are one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 followed by 17 zeros. How can anybody think that this is just a random coincidence that Jesus was born in the right place at the right time, held by Simeon, blah, blah, blah? It's no coincidence. To help you visually comprehend the staggering odds of this probability, Stoner proposed you take that many silver dollars. I don't even know what those are anymore, but silver dollars. Lay them side by side across the state of Texas. Take one, or take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars. Side by side across the state of Texas. It would stack up two feet high. Now, mark one of the silver dollars and then stir up the whole mass of coins. Then blindfold an enthusiastic volunteer and tell him or her that she can travel as far as they like across Texas and stop somewhere, and they must pick out in one chance the marked silver dollar. That's how difficult it is for anybody else to fulfill all of those promises. And yet, God fulfills all those promises through 
Jesus. And the point that I'm making is you can trust him. If he makes a promise, he'll keep it. You can put your hope in God. He is the life-changing, historically trustworthy keeper of all his promises to us. Last question. What can we hope for? This is the careful. I've got to be careful here. What can we hope for? I will give you the biblical answer. What can you hope for? Anything and everything. Now, a lot of us stop there. I'm saved. I've got myself a genie now. And I'm not looking at Jesus to be my savior. I'm looking at him to be the genie to deliver me the things I think I need to have peace and joy. Now that I'm saved, I'm going to have a better marriage, a better life, a better salary. Look at Jesus's life. No one, no one has lived the life that Jesus has lived. And yet his life was not filled with tons of popularity, lots of wealth, warm fuzzies, people singing his, well, sometimes they sang his praises and then sometimes they killed him. What can we hope for? You can hope for everything that God has promised you, but be careful. Make sure you have a good idea of what he has promised us. He's promised us an ultimate future and an immediate future. It's all in the benefits package. This I wish I could make it more exciting. First service, I described it as this gigantic three-ring binder, and the only two people in the room who were excited were me and Ruth Ann. Um, some of you are like, oh, three-ring binder. In the benefits package of Christianity, it is loaded with unconditional promises from God. But I want to be very careful. God doesn't promise us a life of no trouble. What does Jesus say in, in John 14? In this life, you will have trouble. Oh. However, don't worry, he says, I've overcome the world. Now you can grab that. I'm going through trouble, but it's all right. It's temporary. I've got an ultimate future on the other side of this from the overcomer. Just a few other things. Bible doesn't promise that you won't deal with fear, weakness, insecurity. In fact, as you follow Jesus, you'll be confronted with that. We are still, you're going to still see weakness. There's times that you're going to feel fear and you're going to feel afraid. That is normal. That's how we are. But here's a couple things the Bible supplies to us as part of your benefits package. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. So live right so God can go with you. Live right. Be aware of him. He doesn't say you won't have trouble, just says he'll come along. He'll be with you. The only kind of trouble I want to get in is the kind of trouble that God can be in, you know, God can be involved in. I don't want to be the guy climbing out on the end of the limb, get myself in a whole kinds of trouble all the time, saying, God, come bail me out. He'll go with you. He won't forsake you. I'll skip that one. Skip. There's a whole bunch of them. If you get the study guide, you get a whole bunch of them. Bible doesn't say we'll never experience conflict, battles, and attacks. Hebrew, Exodus 14. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to stand still. We sang about it this morning. Bible doesn't say that no weapons will be formed against you. Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. That means the weapon will be formed, just won't prosper. 
The Bible doesn't promise you won't ever be afraid. Jesus says this to his disciples when they were afraid. John 14. Everybody leave with me this morning. We got you. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Philippians 4.13 doesn't say you can do everything in your own strength, but it does say you can do all this through him who gives me strength. 1 Corinthians 10 doesn't say you'll never be temptation, you'll never be tempted, but God says no temptation has seized you except what's common to all men. As God is faithful, he, every time you're tempted, he will provide a way out. Now, some of you read that verse, God won't put more on me than I can handle. That's not what the verse says. It says he won't allow you to be tempted to a degree that is irresistible for you. He will always give you a way out of the temptation. Adam and Eve had a way out. You and I have a way out. Those are the promises that he give you. Well, where's the promises about if I follow Jesus, I'll get double for my trouble and triple? I don't know how it all rhymes. I, I, you know, if I put a dollar in the offering, I should get it. That's what the guy on TV said who wanted to buy a jet. I'm like, how about that joker writes a check himself? You've seen where some of them live? I have. I lived in Georgia. I drove past some of these jokers' houses. I'm like, seriously? That house is bigger than the town I live in. Has a helicopter pad. Where's that in the Bible? I don't know what Bible promises. You just got to be careful because sometimes we believe that I just ask anything in Jesus' name. So it's a formula. I just say, Lord, I name and I claim and I say and I spray and I grab and I blab a million dollar a year salary. I claim it in the name of Jesus. Pada! That's Greek. And then when it doesn't happen, well, oh, he's failed me. See, here's the problem. You're trying to use Jesus as an avenue for material gain. You'll try anything, even hard work. What Jesus offers you is contentment to have more peace and more hope than you'd ever had if you had that other stuff, whether you have it or not. That's what you really need. In conclusion, it is safe to put your hope in God because he can be trusted to make good on his promises. Worship team, will you come? Let me pray for you. Good thing to think about in this moment is what is it that you really hope for? I'm not suggesting that those things are bad. Please don't hear me say that. Well, pastor, maybe I shouldn't hope to be debt-free. Maybe I should just, since I'm going to heaven, I should just borrow and spend it all and leave a massive debt to the Antichrist. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> nor what the Bible teaches. I do worry sometimes. <laughs> Some of y'all think I preach too long. I'm like, if I preach too short, my counseling sessions are going to go through the roof. No, listen, I, I'm not teaching a life of fiscal irresponsibility because you're going to be wealthy in heaven, so just live it up, you know, let MasterCard and Visa and Amex, you know, run, run wild. That's not what I'm talking about. I just don't want you to live thinking that those types of things will deliver to you the lasting joy and peace that only can be found in Jesus, you will be terribly disappointed. And you might even return to spending more and just chasing this thing like, God wants you to be able to enjoy whatever he brings. He wants you to be able to have godliness with contentment. And the only way you get there is through Jesus. Simeon found it. What is it that you hope for today? Can I suggest to you that what you hope that thing to bring to you, it might. And it might be part of God's plan for you. But if it isn't, 
then are you doomed to live a life without that peace and joy? Of course not. What if today you can experience an even greater confidence, a greater trust, a greater joy, a durable peace, a lasting purpose that's disconnected from all your circumstances, that's found in a who, not a what. It's found in Jesus. Simeon found it. How did he find it? He held it in his hands. He took it to his heart, and he said, I receive the peace of this promise fulfilled. If you don't have, if you've never encountered, you've never held Jesus in your heart, today's your day. Today's your day. If you're ready to put your faith in Jesus to receive salvation that's freely offered by God's grace as a response to your faith, here's the prayer you can pray right now, a confession you can make. Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner and I believe I need to be saved. My heart and my conscience both tell me that there's something wrong inside of me. I am not the person that I know I should be. And that as a, as a result of that, I, I owe you. I'm guilty. I'm thankful that Jesus, you satisfied God's justice against my sins by taking my sins on you even before I committed them. You took them on you and you paid for my penalty with your life. And so today I'm acknowledging that. I believe that happened. And I'm asking you to save me, Jesus, knowing that you will. And so please save me. Forgive my sins. Send your spirit to live inside of me. You are the Lord and I'm not, and I welcome you into my life. And now I receive, along with my salvation, I receive all of the hope, all of the peace, all of the joy, all of the love, all of Advent, all that Jesus brought. I receive all of that today. Help me to grow in confidence in you. In your name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are wonderfully, totally saved. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.